Selma Lagerlof's style deserves our full appreciation. Like a loyal daughter, she has administered the rich heritage of her mother tongue. From this source comes the purity of diction, the clarity of expression, and the musical beauty that are characteristic of all her works. What makes Selma Lagerlof's writing so lovable is that we always seem to hear in them an echo of the most peculiar, the strongest, and the best things that have ever moved the soul of the Swedish people, said Klaus Annerstedt as he presented the Nobel Prize to this episode's subject, Selma Lagerlof. everyone and welcome to the biographical wing of the Golden Silent Films podcast library. This episode is a new take on the biography episode, a look at the life of one of the world's greatest writers and her impact on the world of silent cinema. A real two-for-one special. That's the kind of value you need and we give while in the midst of this world tour of silent movies. Before we open up the book properly, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media bookmarks. As usual, head on over to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this here globetrotting podcast. And for all of you folks on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One or just search Golden Silence Cast, and we ought to pop up. All of these screen names and sites will be in the description in case you are interested in checking us out. We would love to have you on board for this year-long romp. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes picks and info upcoming episode reveals and other fun film-related materials, and a new season's worth of fun photos of our not-so-well-read podcasts, Gizmo and Soda Pop. Also, if you are out there in the world listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or both. Our show has been around for over three years now, and we only have 11 reviews on iTunes. We would love to see that number tick up, and you fantastic film fans out there can make it happen. All of those ratings and reviews help so very much. Live your best review leaving life and help our show grow and reach fellow silent film fanatics across the globe. Whether getting us more exposure in the world of podcasts or letting us know how we can improve, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to Golden Silent Films Podcast. While our output can be a bit iffy at times, when you are subscribed, you're never going to miss an episode. The moment new content drops, it will travel straight to your listening device of choice. We are roaming the silent cinematic world, and we don't want you to miss a second of the action. Now, the story of Swedish film wasn't produced solely by the directors and producers of the time, but by a novelist and Swedish national treasure by the name of Selma Lagerlöf. Her works weren't only bestsellers and classics of literature, but they spawned some of the biggest films of the golden age of Swedish movies. It's been quite an adventure putting this episode together. When the concept of a Selma-centric episode came up initially, it seemed like a no-brainer and perfect companion piece to our previous deep dive into The Phantom Carriage. That episode is the perfect lead-in to the story of a woman whose life and works are so, I don't know, quintessentially Swedish. A woman whose prose served as the cornerstone of an entire age of Scandinavian cinema. Now think about that for a minute. It's wild to think that a writer of books would be at the epicenter of one of a country's most prominent eras of film. And it wasn't just that the movies were being made from her works. She was a vital component to these pictures being made. Well, mostly, sort of, but we'll get there, we'll get there. While it's true that she lost a lot of creative control when she sold those film rights, Selma Lagerlöf still played an integral role in their success. 
It was her relationship with Victor Shulstrom that made these that made his adaptations, all five of them, the perfect confluence of source material and adaptation. Now, her interactions with Moritz Stiller would prove a bit more contentious. Regardless, regardless, Swedish cinema and movies in general owe a lot to the work of Selma Lagerlöf. And those cinematic bona fides are all well and good and impressive to look back upon, but there is so much more to the author. When not writing, Lagerlöf was a tireless activist pushing for gender equality and women's suffrage in Sweden. She was never afraid to let her voice be heard and let the respect that her name carried with the public allow for real reform. Lagerlöf really was girl power manifested, truly someone that all people, male or female, can get behind and look to for some measure of inspiration. And when you look at Lagerlöf from the perspective of her writings, you will see her as Sweden's biggest cheerleader though she probably wasn't an official employee of the Greater Bureau of Swedish Tourism, she definitely deserved a paycheck or two. Her works, be it print or film, have done so much to really share and boost the beauty and traditions of Sweden. Every time I read one of her books or watch a film based on her writing, I can really feel the magic of Scandinavia and Sweden. You know, the warm fuzzy feelings that make me want to go back as soon as possible. As terrific as Selma Lagerlöf was, she was but one voice in the long line of Swedish and Scandinavian storytellers. From chatty Vikings scratching rocks, to Nobel Prize winners, to best-selling authors, and everyone and everything in between, Swedish writers have done it all and written it all. The history of Swedish literature can trace its roots back to the sagas, legends, and runes carved in the rocks and stones by various Viking authors. I'll concede that the Vikings weren't always penning or carving high literature, but what they were doing was laying the foundation of a long and illustrious history of Scandinavian authors. In the olden Norse times, these rune stones often served more practical purposes as opposed to telling as opposed to telling layered stories and rich narratives. A lot of these runic inscriptions were made for more mystical and incantory needs. One exception to this rule though is the Rook rune stone carved in or around 800 AD. Daniel Weiss of archaeology.org writes in the language of the Vikings, Old Norse, rook means monolith, and no other runestone stands out from its peers in more ways than Sweden's rook. The five-ton stone measures eight feet tall, and its five sides are covered with the longest runic inscription in existence, some 760 runes divided into 28 lines. And while the vast majority of runestones date to after the mid 10th century AD, the rook was inscribed much earlier, around AD 800. It's the emperor of runestones, says Henrik Williams, a runologist at Uppsala University. Nothing can compare with it. Not to be confused with the rook, the gok runestone carved in the Middle Ages would serve as an example of Christianity making its way into Scandinavia and its impact on Swedish literature. It was much more of the same imagery and basic content of previous runic writing, but a Christian cross was added, as well as some other newer combinations of content and imagery. The earlier pagan heroic tales and mythos were slowly disappearing. The tale told on this stone seems to be the tale of Sigurd and his slaying of the dragon Fafnir. With the conversion of the land to Christianity around 1100 AD, during the Middle Ages, Sweden's monastic writers preferred to use Latin. Because of that, there are only a handful of texts in the Old Swedish from that period. Swedish literature really broke out into its own when the Swedish language was standardized in the 16th century, 
a standardization largely due to the full translation of the Bible into Swedish in 1541. This translation is the so-called Gustav Vasa Bible. Much like Sweden's European neighbors, Christianization represented the most profound cultural influence from the Middle Ages through the era of modernism, when it provided the basis of much of the critique leveled at traditional society. So, medieval and ancient stuff is cool and all, but reading Viking memos on big rocks has its merits, for sure. But what cool Scandinavian authors can you catch at your local library? Let's zip ahead in time and talk about some of the more contemporary Swedish storytellers. Thomas Mellon of the University of Gothenburg brings us up to speed and tells us the ladies were all the rage. As early as the 1840s, he writes, Swedish novels were the most read books of the time in Europe and the USA, says Yvonne Leffler, professor of literary studies. Last year, a research group led by Yvonne Leffler was able to show that Swedish female authors such as Emily Flagari Carlin and Frederica Bremer were best-selling celebrities during the 19th century. This study shows even more clearly that their male colleagues, Carl Jonas Love Almquist and Victor Reidberg, did not have the same international impact at all. It was at the turn of the century in the 1900s with August Strindberg and Selma Lagerlof that Swedish literature first reached international acclaim. By the 1930s, a new awareness of children's needs emerged. This manifested itself shortly after World War II when Astrid Lindgren published the beloved Pippi Longstocking in 1945. Lindgren continued putting out best-selling children's books, eventually making her the most read Swedish author regardless of genre, with over 100 million copies printed throughout the world and translations into over 80 languages. Crime fiction is also a huge best-selling genre in Sweden and contains some of the book series most known the world over. One of the biggest names among Swedish crime writers is Henning Mankel, writer of the books following detective Kurt Wallander. His books have been translated to 37 languages and have become bestsellers, particularly in Sweden and Germany. One of the most famous series of books to come out of Sweden was the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson. These books and subsequent movies were about as big as it gets for a bit back in the early 2000s. They were a real literary sensation. Needless to say, Sweden has contributed incredibly to literary history, and you can see that history and pedigree translate to screens both big and small. You have countless Pippi Longstocking adaptations, then you have Kenneth Branagh playing Wallander in an incredibly popular television series, and of course, the mania that surrounded the Millennium Trilogy films. While those works have done amazing work entertaining crowds, let's rewind time a bit and start our journey back with the Swedish author that started it all, film adaptation-wise. Selma Otilia Lovisa Lagerlof was born on November 20th, 1858 on the family property of Marbaka in Varmland, then a part of the kingdoms of Sweden and Norway. Now, if that sounds like a weird naming conventions by today's standards, you would be correct. Sweden and Norway, or Sweden-Norway, or its official title, the United Kingdoms of Sweden and Norway, if you're not into the whole brevity thing, was a personal union of the separate kingdoms of Sweden and Norway. This territorial team-up existed under a common monarch and common foreign policy that lasted from 1814 until its peaceful dissolution in 1905. And as a bonus, it resulted in some really cool flag designs. In an article by Francis Snow for the September 21st, 1924 edition of the New York Times, we get a great picture painted for us of the beautiful land Lagerlof was raised in. Francis Snow writes, Varmland, which lies a long distance to the west from Stockholm, almost to the frontier of Norway, is Sweden's most beautiful province. 
I recall rolling hills crowned by dark and solemn forests beneath wild sunset splendors of apocalyptic skies, sunny morning slopes spattered with every shade of delicately fusing emeralds, little red farmhouses with their white framed windows gazing down calmly over long stretches of brown land and over the glitter of Fricken, farmland's great lake, whose widespread waters cut a broad and silvery line for mile on mile through the smiling landscape. Lagerlof was the daughter of an Eric Gustav Lagerlof, a retired lieutenant of the Royal Varmland Regiment, and Elizabeth Lovisa, whose father was a successful merchant and foundry owner. Lagerlof was the couple's fifth child of six, and Selma grew up under strict conditions. This early portion of her life would be defined by discipline and religion, and a little bit of sickness. Marbaca was indeed a manor house, Francis Snow writes, as the lieutenant belonged to the lesser gentry. But it was a single-story affair, entrance hall in the center, the kitchen on one side of the hall, a bedroom on the other. The large dining room beyond the hall with the parlor off to one side, the kitchen and bedroom off to the other. The Marbaca estate was a shining light in the early life of Selma and her siblings. Despite an oft-times harsh father and childhood plagued by injury and sickness, Logerloff was a sturdy Swede not prone to giving up. The future author was born with a bum hip which caused some serious wonkiness in that joint. On top of that, an illness at three years old left her lame in both legs, although she would later recover. One of the big moments in her younger years was attending the play My Rose of the Forest at the Royal Dramatic Theater. After she returned home to Marbaca, the children in the family played theater, building a wall with beds, bureaus, tables, and chairs, and covering it with blankets and quilts in an effort to recreate the stage setup. Having received various medical treatments and regimens, Lagerlof was able to walk again by the age of nine. These episodes of childhood hardship forced the girl to be homeschooled. She used this time to her great advantage, spending her days reading and writing poetry. In addition to those tales, she was enthralled by the Nordic fairy tales told to her by her grandmother. Those magical stories of wild adventures lit a fire of creativity for her that would later serve her as great inspiration. For so long as there are interesting books to read, it seems to me that neither I nor anyone else, for that matter, need be unhappy, Logerloff would say. This disability forced me to sit still and look inside myself. That is why I became a writer. While we are still in the Varmland section of our story, let's look at the aura of creativity this region exudes. There is so much about this neck of the woods that can inspire creativity and encourage artists to make incredible works of art. Varmland is, according to writer Anna Maria Helberg Moberg, a rural region of western Sweden with a very specific claim to fame. For several centuries, it has been a fertile breeding ground for creatives, from writers, poets, and musicians to artists and sculptors. It has even been described as the promised land of poetry and storytelling. Many creatives were born and bred here, while others were drawn to settle in the area, lured by the scenic, peaceful landscapes of forests, lakes, and rivers dotted with small farming communities. Helena Forrest Scott, in a preface to a recent edition of the Phantom Carriage novel, talks about how Selma made the most of her circumstances. Forrest Scott writes, Growing up at a time when the Swedish economy was predominantly agricultural, Selma Legerlof and her sisters learnt about the tasks necessary to keep the self-sufficient household ticking over, but their opportunities of getting an education beyond that which could be provided by their governess were close to non-existent. Selma Lagerlof succeeded in borrowing money to spend three years in Stockholm training to become a teacher, one of the few professions open to women at the time. 
By the early 1880s, Selma decided to strike out on her own and make a life for herself. To that end, Logerloff studied at the Hogra Laurinus Seminariat, or as I prefer to say, the HLS in Stockholm from 1882 to 1885. This program was started in 1878 to provide training and education to aspiring teachers. The school was started in 1871 but rechristened and renamed to the HLS in 1878. The program would exist up to the early 1940s. While she was away, her father died with very little money to his name, and Lagerlof's childhood home of Marbaka was unfortunately sold. It was a sad day for the author, heartbreaking even. It was a terrible feeling, and it was something that would stick with her for a long, long time. While still working on her education, Selma became an activist with regard to welfare issues, but never lost that dream of becoming an author. It wasn't long before Lagerlof put that education to use. She worked as a country school teacher at a high school for girls in Lanskrona from 1885 to 1895. It was during this run in Lanskrona teaching, 1891 to be exact, when she began her first novel, Gusta Berling's Saga. Despite the future success of the novel, Logerloff's first break as a writer took a bit to fully capture the imagination of the country. The life of the novel actually began in the pages of a Swedish magazine. Logerloff submitted the first chapters of the book to a literary contest in a magazine and won a publishing contract for the whole book. In the early days, her work seemed to only receive mild reviews from the critics. But it wasn't until a, Dan a popular Danish critic, a fellow named George Brandis, had given her positive reviews in the Danish translation that her popularity really started to grow. According to writer Victoria Ebner, an international rejection of the public's current interest in realism and naturalism, Lagerlof's Gosta Berlin saga experimented with lyrical prose and imagination. I have a terribly strong belief in the genius inside me, Lagerlof wrote to her mother that same year, already confident the novel would be a success. I believe that this is the best book yet in Swedish. Before we talk about her books and their silver screen counterparts, let's jump ahead a bit and talk about the selling of her book's film rights. In 1919, Logerloff sold all the movie rights to Svenska Biograftetern. When director Victor Sjöström was at the helm of things, there, everything went really great and smooth, and Logerloff was quite comfortable with the deal. The Swedish film database explains, Selma Lagerloff got along well with Victor Sjöström. When Svenska Biograftetern bought the film rights to Selma Lagerloff's works, it was none other than Victor Sjöström who was sent to Marbaka to negotiate with the author. And when Lagerloff began to receive requests for film adaptations from abroad, it was Victor Sjöström she turned to for advice. Perhaps the main reason for this mutual respect was that Victor Sjöström remained faithful to the literary material even when the medium of film as a means of expression underwent major changes at the time. In a radio interview from the 1930s, Sjöström says of Samar Lagerloff's approval of his film adaptations, it was quite a great joy and satisfaction for me. The film had taken a giant social step up. In a finer salon, we could not be received than in Selma Lagerlofs. Now, let's start with that classic first book and open up the history of Gosta Berling's saga. The story takes place in Varmland during the 1820s and mainly revolves around a deposed priest named Gosta Berling. The book consists of an introduction in two parts and 36 chapters. Many of the chapters offer alternative stories in which secondary characters are portrayed in detail and colorfully, I might add. More specifically, the book's hero, Gosta Berling, is a defrocked Lutheran priest who has been saved by the mistress of Ekby, 
from freezing to death and thereupon becomes one of her pensioners in the manor at Ekby. As the pensioners finally get power in their own hands, they manage the property as they themselves see fit, and their lives are filled with many wild adventures. Gosta Berling is their leading spirit, poet, and charming personality amongst the band of revelers. Before the story ends, Gosta Berling is redeemed, and even the old mistress of Exby is permitted to come to her old home and die. In Selma Lagerlof's Nobel Prize ceremony, a presentation speech was given by Klaus Onerstedt, president of the Swedish Academy, on December 10, 1909. In his speech, Onerstedt talks quite a bit about Lagerlof's first book and the impact it had. Onerstedt would say, Few first novels have attracted so much attention as Gosta Berling's saga. The work was significant not only because it broke decisively with the unhealthy and false realism of the times, but also because of its own original character. Yet the work was not unanimously praised. If most people admired it greatly, some criticized it severely. There could be no better proof of its extraordinary character. However peculiar the characters and situations created by this imagination might be, they were covered by the marvelous bloom of artistic genius, and the presentation at times exhibited rapturous beauty. The reader was particularly moved by the profound feeling that in this work he was encountering a forgotten piece of what had once been Swedish country life. His heart was captured just as the curious radiant surface of the picture enchanted his senses. This first novel did have its weaknesses. How could it be otherwise? Where is gold found pure? When does genius enter the world completely mature? But one thing was abundantly clear. A new genius of genuine Swedish nature was trying its wings. So, for all of you English readers out there, Gosta Berling's Saga was first translated by Lily Tudier in 1894 as Gosta Berling's Saga, but was unavailable in the U.S. and soon out of print in the U.K. This edition would be reprinted in 1918 by the American Scandinavian Foundation with edits and eight additional chapters that had been omitted from the 1894 edition. It was also translated in 1898 by Pauline Bancroft Flatch as the story of Gosta Berling. Both of these editions are in the public domain and have been commonly reprinted by various publishers over the years. In more recent times, a new English translation by poet Robert Bly was published, with the translators afterward, in 1962. It was put out by Signet Classics under the title The Story of Gosta Berling. The most, English, the most recent English translation by Paul Norlin was published in 2009 by Penguin. Though I haven't had a chance to give this novel a read yet, it is definitely something on my to-do list. Researching Selma Lagerlof has really lit a fire in me to give her works a read. There are so many amazing adventures to be had, and I hope this episode spreads the word and really excites others to give her a read as well. Also, seeing the movie really did a lot to pique my interest in diving into the source material. Speaking of that film version, let's talk about it. Before we do that, a little explanation is in order. This episode will be sort of out of order. We will be talking about her works in the order in which they were written, followed by short discussions about their film counterparts, regardless of when they were filmed. I hope this isn't too confusing and is a fun trip down the road of Swedish literary adaptations. In this case, the movie version of Gosta Berlin's Saga entered theaters in 1924, over 30 years after the book. Remember when I mentioned she didn't always get along with her directorial collaborators? This film is one of the examples of a lightly chippy relationship. While the final product really came out as an amazing piece of film, behind the scenes there were, things were a little less rosy. As I mentioned, things were kind of going to be a bit out of order, uh, and this one is one of those bits. 
Though Ghost of Berlin Saga was her first book, Goner had his saga, The Tale of the Man or the Blizzard, was an adaptation of hers directed by Stiller in 1923. That was where the communication breakdown started to happen between the two creatives. In an article for the Swedish Film Database website, we read, The relationship between Lagerlöf and Stiller was initially good, but over time it became increasingly strained as she opposed the artistic freedom that Stiller took in the films. The problem started in connection with Gunnar Hedda's saga, when Stiller did not allow Lagerlöf to take part of the manuscript to the extent she wanted. With those previous bad feelings still pretty fresh, Lagerlöf was very much opposed to Stiller taking the reins of Gosta Berling's saga. When she heard the news that he was due to direct the big screen version of her debut novel, she tried unsuccessfully to buy back the film rights. Turning back to the Swedish film database, we read, In a letter that Lagerlöf wrote to Stiller in May of 1924, the author expresses her views on the discrepancies between Stiller's cinematic vision and the literary underpinning. At the time, when the cinema was content to follow the text of my novels and short stories, I was happy about the film adaptation. It seemed like a series of illustrations alive and beautiful, and I didn't ask for anything else. But now that I see that you think the book should only be a source of inspiration, and that the material should be remelted into something completely new exclusively for the film, then I must say honestly and firmly that I cannot be there any longer. I thought that the reversals and extraneous additions in the manor tale were an accident forced out of consideration for foreign countries, and I thought that the upheavals in Gusta Berlin were due to the necessity of shortening. But now, when you think that cinema demands that the subject should be rearranged in this way, I will not let go of my books anymore. I understand that you are trying with your great ability to elevate the film to something artistic, a new art form, a music for the eye, if I may say so. But this certainly requires that the film texts are composed for the film from the beginning. Then you have your freedom. But for old, well-known books, I think the first approach was the right one. In an essay by Farron Smith-Nemi for SilentFilm.org, we get a look at the production itself. Smith-Nemi writes, Originally released in two parts that ran almost four hours, Ghost of Berlin was Stiller's last film as an auteur in control of all aspects of production. Shot in the historical Swedish province of Varmland over a period of six months, to accommodate the change of seasons, Ghost of Berlin makes outstanding use of the area's dense forest scenery and frozen lakes. Its major set pieces include a breathtaking chase across a frozen surface of a lake and a fire scene to rival Gone with the Wind's burning of Atlanta. It engrosses, moving swiftly despite the long runtime. Ghost of Berlin is, in fact, marvelous. But the post-release life of the film would not always be so marvelous, as is the tragic tale of many a silent film. Ghost of Berlin's saga would be hit with edits, cuts, and other various pieces of missing content. The fact that it survives is fantastic, but the asterisks with it is what version are you watching and what may or may not be missing. Smith Nemi adds, Ghost of Berlin itself has had a checkered fate. The film was cut down to one part for most international releases, then shortened even more dramatically in 1927 to about half its original length. As the years went by, missing scenes were discovered and replaced with the 2006 restoration, released in the U.S. by Kino International, running about 184 minutes. The Swedish Film Institute has since located more footage, and the Ghost of Berlin being screened at, the fest at festivals is 16 minutes longer, with its color tinting restored and the inner titles recreated to match the originals. So, 
We're talking movies, but let's turn back to Lagerlof's life with an emphasis on the relationships the writer would build throughout her life. Some of the most powerful ties Lagerlof had in life came from other women. Dr. Bill Lipsky of the San Francisco Bay Times writes, All her life, Lagerlof had strong, passionate ties to other women, who inspired and supported her intellectually and emotionally. Although she kept her private life private, the letters she wrote to her most intimate friends, sealed for 50 years after her death, reveals someone of great passion, with intense physical and ardent feelings towards many of the women she knew. In 1894, Lagerlof would embark on the first of these deep, meaningful friendships with female friends. According to Victoria Ebner, writer for the Philadelphia Gay News website, we read, It was during that time that Lagerlof met Sophia Elkin, a widow that she would write love letters to until Elkin's death in 1921. The pair traveled through Europe together, and their trip influenced Lagerlof's second book, The Miracles of the Antichrist, in 1897, and the two-part series, Jerusalem, in 1901. Before we dive too fully into the burgeoning relationship, let's talk about the trip that would inspire the miracles of the Antichrist. With her close companion and traveling buddies Sophie Elkin in tow, Lagerlof headed to Italy with additional stops in Palestine and other parts of the Middle East. Whilst in Italy, a legend of the Christ figure that had been replaced with the false version inspired Lagerlof's novel Antichrist Miracler, or The Miracles of the Antichrist. Set in Sicily, the novel explores the interplay between Christian and socialist moral systems. This would be one of the few books Lagerlof would write that did not take place in her beloved Varmland. Now, back to our main story and those letters we mentioned a moment ago. Victoria Ebner adds some insights from these letters when she writes, At their first meeting, Lagerlof had already been smitten, lifting Elkin's veil to say, you are very beautiful. I know we will become friends. However, the feelings she had also confused her. These kisses of yours that you convey in your letters, they are a great puzzlement to me, Lagerlof said. In Copenhagen, I see so many relationships between women that I must try to comprehend in my own mind what nature's intention is with this. Their relationship also served a professional need in addition to their emotional ties. Over their many years together, Lagerlof and Elkin would critique and discuss each other's work. Lagerlof wrote that Elkin's opinion carried a lot of weight and she would, and would strongly influence her work. In fact, Elkin sometimes disagreed with the direction Lagerlof wanted to take in her books. Later in the episode, we'll talk more about those heartfelt letters, but let's move on for a moment. Uh, get back to Lagerlof's teaching career. Lagerlof's last teaching term came with the spring term of 1895. By this point, she was fairly certain that she could now live off the proceeds of her writing. She left Lanskrona in 1897 and headed to Fallon, where her sister Gerda Algren now lived. Now, Sophia Elkin wasn't the only female in Lagerlof's life during this stretch of time. In 1897, like I said, Lagerlof moved to Fallon in order to be closer to her sister Gerda and her family. With the Marbaca property gone, the Lagerlof siblings took turns looking after their mother and paternal aunt. The SKBL website... I'll talk about that later, it's a, it's a mouthful, but for now we're going to call it the SKBL website, breaks down the next fateful meeting for Selma. Elizabeth Stenberg writes, During her early years in Fallon, Selma Lagerlof's social network was largely limited to her family. However, at a reception held at the county governor's residence, she met Valborg Olander for the first time. They began to socialize together, and Selma Lagerlof found Valborg Olander to be a person with whom she could discuss literature and much more. The personal life of Selma Lagerlof was in upheaval, but 
the one thing that kept her grounded and focused was her writing. And, on that topic, her next big written release that would spawn a movie came in 1899 with the publication of En Herzgarsgaden, or The Tale of a Manor. It would first be published in English in 1923 in a volume titled The Tale of a Manor and Other Sketches. The novel centers around two young characters, Gunnar and Ingrid, one driven to madness by the horrific death of his goats in a blizzard, the other falling into a death-like trance as a result of the absence of familial warmth. The two eventually rescue each other from their psychological underworlds and return to an everyday world that is now enhanced by the presence of goodness and love. Longtime Lagerlof translator Peter Graves would, Peter Graves would write, The short novel N. Hergardskogen, 1899, The Tale of a Manor, transcends boundaries as it explores music and dreams, madness and sanity, death and life in the context of the emerging relationship between a young woman and man. FYI, it's not that Peter Graves, at least I don't think so. I would love to think that we lived in a world where the great actor Peter Graves also had a side hustle as a crack Swedish translator banging out Swedish classics for the English-speaking world, but I don't think we can be that lucky. The Tale of a Manor was published in English in 1923, like I mentioned a minute ago, in a portmanteau volume titled The Tale of a Manor and Other Sketches. Now, the movie side of things here is where the friction we mentioned earlier between Lagerlof and Stiller really began, where it really started to seep into things. This project was actually a long-awaited production of A.B. Svensk's film industry. They unsuccessfully tried to make a film adaptation in 1915 with a Gustav Molander working on the screenplay. The film would end up canceled, and by the early 1920s, plans were revived and the project given to Moritz Stiller, who was credited as writer, together with the Finnish Swedish author Alma Solderhelm. The Swedish film database really takes us deep into the interpersonal rancor between the two as this film started out its life with Stiller's script delivery to Lagerlof. The article reads, When the manuscript was finished, he submitted it to Selma Lagerlof, just as he had previously done with the manuscript for Er Arns Pengar, and as Solström had always done before with his recordings of her books. This time, however, the author protested vigorously, and only gradually and very reluctantly, and then more by the company than by Stiller himself, allowed herself to not to approve, but not to publicly protest against the changes or, as she believed, the distortions of the story. The Blizzard, as it ended up being named, was released on January 1st, 1923 in Swedish theaters. In a review from the Swedish Film Database, a reviewer of the time writes, Long in advance, it was announced that it was necessary to change the story in a manor tale about how the goats perished in the blizzard and how Hetty, after witnessing this horrible spectacle, lost his mind, as the episode was technically impossible to produce on film and would also have involved unnecessary animal cruelty. Instead of goats, the film has a reindeer herd which is dispersed and scattered because the lead reindeer goes wild and runs away, dragging Hetty behind him. After this perilous journey, Hedit loses his mind. That this change of detail had to be made for practical reasons is understandable, but it also lays the whole story on a different basis, the reviewer continues. Hetty, who in Selma Lagerlof's story becomes insane due to the shaking of his soul at the sight of the death and agony of living beings, loses his sanity. While in the film, it is due to a physical shock and the injuries he suffers while being dragged behind the reindeer. In doing so, the film loses the deep ethical tragedy that the book possesses. 
The reviewer goes on to write that one would have expected the film to find at least something of the book's spirit, a breath of its poignant atmosphere, a glimpse of its psychological mastery. Nor can one help but wonder why the dramatic situations, which nevertheless appear in such abundance in the book, could not have been used for film purposes. Another reviewer would write, The film and the book have, strictly speaking, nothing to do with each other. The basic tone, the mood, the ethical meaning of A Tale of a Manor are absolutely eliminated in Gunnar Hedy's saga and replaced by an effort to create sensation that further distances the two works from each other. The film lacks the wonderful fairy tale atmosphere of Selma Ligerloff's book, its mystery, and its people. Gunnar Hedy's saga, or A Manor Tale, or The Blizzard, has not been preserved in its original state. The restored copy of the film is only about two-thirds or so of the original film. Significant sections of it are, unfortunately, badly damaged or incomplete. Which moves us to The Holy City of Jerusalem and Selma Lagerlof's two-part book of the same name. Lagerlof was inspired to write Jerusalem after reading a newspaper article about a group of Swedish peasants from the Nas parish in Dalarna, who in 1896 left Sweden for religious reasons and made their way to the titular Jerusalem. She took that initial concept and expanded greatly on it. Additional research and inspiration came from trips Lagerloff took to Nas Parish, as well as the Holy Land itself. Now, Peter, Gry Peter Graves writes, The plot launches straight into the topic of emigration, prominent in Sweden since the 1860s, by exploring a farming community in the province of Dalarna and the emigration of part of the community to Jerusalem. The style was inspired by the medieval Icelandic sagas, but although the focus on emigration also established a thematic link with the sagas, the inversions of Saga's patterns, such as bloody confrontations and family feuds, became more prominent as the plot foregrounds peaceful achievements and international understanding. Yet, this is first and foremost a narrative in which traditional structures of stability are torn apart, in which family relationships and relations between lovers are tried and often found wanting, and in which the eventual reconciliation between old and new comes at a considerable price. Frances Snow adds, Above all, she has written Jerusalem, depicting with a poignancy never surpassed by Dostoevsky the migration of the dour, tormented, nostalgic Swedish peasants of Dalakarlia to the holy city for their soul's salvation, a masterpiece of inspired writing which often reaches the heights of pure sublimity. To this day, over 120 years later, the novel still packs a punch, so much so that even writers of today are blown away with it. And that's saying something, that a work like Jerusalem can still be as important and vital as it was the day it was released. In a recent article by Car Ingrid Carlsberg for the website independent.co.uk, we get a glimpse into the classic novel's long-lasting appeal. In her article, Carlsberg recounts her initial impressions of the whole experience as she read the novel for the first time. Carlsberg writes, The following day I was lost to the world. I was too caught up in her universe to analyze it. I followed those emigrants from a small Swedish village all the way to Israel. The poor people who had been told by an American preacher that God wanted them to travel to Jerusalem to join a Christian utopian society called American Colony. I smelled their sweat, sensed their pain, their hunger, and their passion. The writing was not just witty, it was music, it was magic. I was captivated to my very soul marveling at Lagerlof's seemingly effortless storytelling. It's an impressive feat to create such a realistic world that the action comes to life right off the page. This is something I've read endlessly about 
as I've looked at Lagerlof's work and especially discussions about Jerusalem. The picture she paints is incredibly powerful and sticks with the reader. And now, I've never been a great reader, to be honest. I often have trouble concentrating and building the world of the novel in my head. But I can definitely say that books like what it sounds like Jerusalem is can really pull me in and keep me focused on the action at hand. When I can find an author who excels at this, I tend to stick with them. And if you're in the same boat, you got to look at the works of Selma Lagerlof. And it's definitely something, like I said earlier, that I am definitely going to dive into at some point. Another person who shares a passion for this book is someone we've heard from previously. That's Klaus Annerstedt, president of the Swedish Academy. In his introduction speech for Lagerlof's Nobel win, he would say, Selma Lagerlof's talent comes out most clearly in the proud achievement that bears the name Jerusalem. The reader sees things as dearly as if he himself were experiencing how this strong breed with its serious and introspective character goes its way, brooding heavily over the riddles of life. With loving perception, the poet has sounded the secret depth of their souls, and a bloom of purest poetry transforms the realistic and faithful description of their touching and simple lives. So, to this point, we've really been putting over the novel for so long, I almost forgot to talk about the book's cinematic counterpart. That's me being a bad podcast host. Very bad podcast host. Let me attempt to redeem myself with some movie talk featuring Victor Solström and his two films based on the source material. First, you got Sons of Ingmar and its follow-up, Karen, Daughter of Ingmar. Solström wrote, acted, and directed the films as part of a larger planned series that would fully capture the scope of the novel. Though only two films were produced, they really got Sweden's name out there as a big player in the movie industry. Like many of the Swedish films of the time, they were produced by Charles Magnusson with cinematography by the talented Julius Janssen. Relating the movie back to the book, the two films were each full-length features, but only constituted roughly 30 pages of the novel on which they were based, which is pretty wild to think about. Schallström wrote the script for Sons of Ingmar in March of 1918 and got it approved by Selma personally. By April 8th, Svenska Bio had purchased the rights to the novel, which set the stage for formal filming to begin soon after. And by soon after, I mean filming started at the end of May and was completed during the summer. Most of the filming occurred on location in Dalarna. The Swedish film database takes us deeper into the production. The article reads, A lot of work was put into both set decoration and trick filming. The former was the responsibility of the decorative painter Harry Dahlstrom, who was responsible for the naive paradise and the heavenly abode of the sons of Ingmar in the traditional Dalakarlian style. The acclaimed church ladder and Lil Ingmar's ascension to heaven were made in a studio with a miniature landscape and one-picture shots of a doll in Lil Ingmar's clothes. If you want the full and actual title of this first film translated in English, it is The Sons of Ingmar, film play in 10 acts after the opening chapter of Selma Lagerlos, Jerusalem. Or, I prefer Sons of Ingmar, and it was released on January 1st, 1919, followed by Karen, Daughter of Ingmar, on February 2nd, 1920. The films were huge box office successes in Sweden. The first film, for example, had 196,000 moviegoers in Stockholm alone, which at the time only had a population of about 400,000. These adaptations really showed what a caring touch Schostrom had when it came to bringing Lagerlof's books to life. You can really see why the two would vibe and get along so well. She especially appreciated how he would keep the general flow, look, and feel of her books alive in the film. 
the fact that he ran scripts and ideas past her first shows the respect he had for her ideas and her opinions. By 1902, the Lagerlof-Olander relationship had evolved into a romantic one. Much like Sophie Elkin, Volkberg Olander was an intelligent, capable editor who often gave Selma Lagerlof notes and proofreading expertise. In addition to that, Olander responded to correspondence and attended to more practical matters. In 1902, Lagerlof would be tasked with making geography fun for the children of Sweden. This challenge came from the Swedish Teachers Association. In fact, it was some connections of Valberg Olander that got the ball rolling on this educational endeavor. According to the Skvenskvinnobiografikst lexicon website, or as I prefer, the skble.se website, it was Valberg Olander who passed on a request from headteacher Alfred Dahlen, whom she had met at a Scandinavian schools meeting in Norway in 1901, to Selma Ligerlof regarding a contribution for a new geography textbook for Swedish public schools. Valborg Olander was actively involved in developing the new textbook, and later she published a handbook and supplementary annotated map. Despite this, she was not allowed to accompany Selma Ligerlof on her travels to Norland, which she undertook to gather material which would later form Nils Holgersson's Underbara Russa Genomes Farage, published in 1906 and 1907. So, all that is to say that the result of this Make Geography Fun Again prompt was Nils Holgersson's Underbara Russa Genomes Farage, or The Wonderful Adventures of Nils, if English translations are more your style, as they are for me. It was originally published in two books, in 1906 and 1907 respectively, and was first published in English as The Wonderful Adventures of Nils in 1907 and The Further Adventures of Nils in 1911. The novel follows the adventures of a shrunken boy from the southernmost part of Sweden in a goose. The two travel across the country on an adventurous trip across all the historical provinces of Sweden, observing in passing their natural characteristics and economic resources. At the same time, the characters and situations they encounter make them grow in their own ways. The domestic goose needing to prove his ability to fly like the experienced wild geese, and Nils needing to prove to the geese that he would be a useful companion despite their initial misgivings. During the trip, Nils learns that if he proves he has changed for the better, he will be returned back to his normal size. A Swedish book critic would say, Beyond all doubt, The Wonderful Adventures of Nils is one of the most noteworthy books ever published in our language. I take it that no other nation has a book of this sort. One can make this or that comment on one or another phase of it, but as a whole, it impresses one as being so masterful, so great, and so Swedish that one lays the book down with a sense of gratitude for the privilege of reading such a thing. There is a deep undercurrent of Swedish earnestness all through this tale of Nils. It belongs to us. It is part of us. Now, remember when I mentioned that the scope and reach of the wonderful adventures of Nils, I wasn't kidding or being hyperbolic. When author Kenzaburu O oh received the Nobel Prize for Literature on December 10, 1994, a good portion of his acceptance speech centered around that famous book. O oh would say, I am a strange Japanese who spent his infancy and boyhood under the overwhelming influence of Nils Holgersson. So great was Nils' influence on me that there was a time I could name Sweden's beautiful locales better than those of my own country. Back on the literary adaptation wagon, Selma Lagerlof released The Treasure, or Air Arns Penninger, as it was known in the mother tongue, 
While it was released in 1904 in Sweden, it would be another 19 years before it had its English debut. Set in Boslan in the 16th century, it tells the story of a group of Scottish mercenaries who escape from prison. They go on to murder a family to steal a treasure chest, after which one of them falls in love with the family's sole survivor. According to the Swedish film database, Selma Lagerlof's story, Air Arns Penninger, was written in October of 1903 and published that same autumn. The idea of filming it was an old one. As early as October 1915, actually, Svenska Bio had bought a dramatization of it, made with the permission of the author. At that time, the project was put on hold, and it wasn't until Selma Lagerlof received an offer for the film rights from Germany that she returned to Svenska Bio and the company declared its interest in buying the film rights again. The Swedish film database continues, The indoor scenes, with their extraordinarily beautiful Rembrandt lighting, are unusually artistically arranged, and the outdoor scenes have an intense atmosphere of Nordic winter. Not a detail that isn't artistically balanced to fit into the whole thing. Not a misalignment of the camera. The film is really most of all a directorial achievement, and a good director should also be able to get the actors to do what he wants. Stiller can. He takes out what they have to the utmost of their performance. Mary Johnson, like Elsa Lil, reaches higher than she has ever done before. It is entirely thanks to her playing that one gets a sense of how she is driven to betray the man she loves. Her sweet childlike little face has a thousand nuances, and her plasticity and all its calm mastery is more expressive than what one is used to seeing in most actresses. She is both ingenue and tragine, and therefore she also fulfills her very delicate task. The story concept, originally outlined in 1904 as The Treasure, proved incredibly popular to filmmakers and other creative folks throughout the years. In addition to films, it has been the subject of adaptations for stage, radio, and even an opera. In 1907, Lagerlof would, start, would get a start on getting her own treasures in the form of honors and recognitions. Though it would be a couple years before she received the big one, Lagerlof received an honorary doctorate at the University of Uppsala in 07. Tolson Franz Stormy Torpet was the next book in the line of future film adaptations. And when I say this story got film versions, I am not kidding. But we'll get there in a moment. 1908 saw the release of Lagerlof's The Girl from Marsh Croft. Like I said, this was a novella that got its start in life in a collection of stories published through Bonniers in 1908. This story didn't have as long of a turnaround time as some of Lagerlof's previous works. The whole collection was published in English as The Girl from the Marsh Croft in 1910 and was translated by Velma Swanston Howard. It was such a hit that it was eventually republished in Sweden in 1917 as its own volume. I don't know if you can tell, but our favorite Nobel dude Klaus Anerstedt was a big Selma Lagerlof fan, and this novella was of special importance to him. In his Nobel presentation speech, Anerstedt would remark, as a painter of peasant life, she is completely original and can compete with the best of other countries. Tosin Franz Stormy Torpet, 1908, is inimitable in its realistic and faithful description, and it contains a new and deeper beauty in the irresistible power of unselfish love which underlies the whole work, and there are many other pieces of equal beauty. So, that means we can officially say it's definitely got the laurels and plaudits going for being a quality literary product. So much so that everybody wanted to make a movie from it. Not one, not two, not three, four, five, or even six, but seven film adaptations exist. The first was the classic 1917 adaptation by Victor Schulstrom, where it was known as The Last from the Stormy Croft, 
which was a pillar of that golden age of Swedish silent film. The other versions include a German and Turkish version in 1935, a Finnish one in 1940, another Swedish version in 1947, followed by a Danish take in 1952, and a second German version in 1958. So, this episode has tried to stick to book publication dates for an order in which we are looking at the life and works of Selma Lagerlof while talking adaptations a bit out of order. Hopefully, so far, things haven't been too confusing. I only bring this up again to explain that we have been talking for a while, and only now are we hitting the first film adaptation of a Selma Lagerlof story, and the early stages of the great relationship between Lagerlof and Scholstrom. The film adaptation of Marshcroft was to be the first to be based on any of her works, despite her having received proposals early on. Lagerlof had been fairly hesitant to dip her toes in the water at this early point in film. Sophie Elkin had also had some misgivings, but both had seen Turge Vegan, which was directed and starred uh, Victor Schulstrom. Both were so positive about it, and they knew that if anyone was directing it, this guy could direct it and make it something special. On April 28th, Lagerlof reached an agreement for the film rights, with the value of the deal coming in at a Swedish kroner amount of 2000 S.E.K. The filming mostly took place in Dalarna between June 15th and July 25th. The film was reviewed in the New York Times in March of 1919, where it was pointed out that a number of scenes in setting and action are dramatic purely by their pictorial power, and the reviewer felt the film should win a place on Broadway. At this point, Selma Lagerlof books are tearing it up and firing on all cylinders, so much so that the folks from a particular Swedish prize organization were starting to take notice and know. In case you're curious, I am not talking about the Swedish Publishers Clearinghouse. Now, two years after The Wonderful Adventures of Nils was published, Lagerlof finally won the Nobel Prize on December 10, 1909. And I can say finally, I really mean it. You see, for a few years there was a human roadblock in her way by the name of Carl David Afversen. This fellow was a longtime secretary of the Academy at the time, and he used his spot to block her nomination on five separate occasions. Regardless of one weird dude with issues, Selma Lagerlof had a lot of supporters in the Nobel gang. Enough that eventually her day would come, and she would get the respect and award validation she also rightly deserved. We are acting according to the will of the founder if we honor those who have had such success in appealing to the best sides of the human heart and whose name and achievement have penetrated far beyond the borders of Sweden. Nor should anyone who bears a famous literary name, whether inside or outside the country, be envious if the Swedish Academy today pronounces that it has awarded this year's Nobel Prize in Literature to Sweden's distinguished daughter, Selma Lagerlof, Klaus Annerstedt said as he presented the Nobel Prize for Literature to Lagerlof on December 10, 1909. One of the coolest connections I have to this episode comes during this Nobel Prize bit. On one of my trips to Sweden, I was lucky enough to get to see the house of Alfred Nobel in person. It was an amazing experience, and as someone who loves historical places, I was pretty much in heaven. I love walking in the footsteps of great and historic folks, and this place definitely gives you that in spades. Nobel's crib, also known as Bjorkborn Manor, was a huge manor house and the very last residence of Alfred Nobel in Sweden. The residence is located in Karlskoga municipality, Oldbro County, Sweden. The current standing white-colored manor house was built in the 1810s, but the history of the property is much older. 
One of the coolest things about this place is that Bjorkborn Manor was converted into the Alfred Nobel Museum. During the, summer of, during the summers of 1894 to 1896, Nobel lived in the manor house Bjorkborn. Even though he died in his villa in San Remo, Italy, he had a home in Paris, and he had a home in Paris, it was decided that his residency was at Bjorkborn in Karlskoga. In 1978, the estate officially became the Alfred Nobel Museum. Check out our social medias for some photos I took at this historic house. In accepting the award, Lagerlöf's speech really tugged the heartstrings. She was someone with unique and powerful talent to mold and shape words into something more than just vocabulary strung together in sentence form. She had a magic to really tell a story packed with so much emotion. Lagerlöf in her acceptance speech would hearken back to her father. She would say, Deep within me, however, was a wondrous joy at receiving this prize, and I tried to dispel my anxiety by thinking of those who would rejoice at my good fortune. There were my good friends, my brothers and sisters, and first and foremost my old mother who, sitting back home, was happy to have lived to see this day. But then, she continues, I thought of my father and felt a deep sorrow that he should no longer be alive, and that I could not go to him and tell him that I had been awarded the Nobel Prize. I knew that no one would have been happier than he to hear this. Never have I met anyone with his love and respect for the written word and its creators, and I wished he could have known that the Swedish Academy had bestowed on me this great prize. Yes, it was a deep sorrow to me that I could not tell him. Now, there's a, quite a bit more as Lagerlöf imagines an exchange between herself and her father in her speech. It is very much a worthy read and something that really hits you hard and is something that a lot of people can empathize with and, and really get you in the feels as the the kids say these days if you want to take a look at it for yourself just head on over to www.nobelprize.org and give it a search it's really good stuff now the big win affected more than just her reputation and legacy as a writer it also brought with it a good chunk of prize money which she was able to use in the real estate game and repurchase her beloved marbaca it was lost when her father died but it was in her possession once again and she would live there the rest of her life now Lagerlöf wasn't just a writer of fictional stories. She was someone deeply concerned with social issues of the time, and her status in the world allowed her the opportunity to have her voice heard. It didn't hurt that her relationship with Olander, Volberg Olander, brought her even closer to the women's movement in Sweden. She participated in suffragette debates and was happy to make appearances when her name and influence could prove useful. The speech she gave, entitled Hem och Stat, home and the state, in conjunction with the 1911 International Suffragette Conference in Stockholm, garnered a ton of attention. In 1911, she gave the keynote address at the International Suffrage Congress in Stockholm. When the Swedish women's right to vote was finally recognized in 1919, the National Association for Women's Suffrage celebrated with a rally that featured a speech by Lagerlöf. She placed women's work at the focal point of her speech. Selma Lagerlöf encouraged women to become involved in everything in order to build a good state in collaboration with men. Speaking of statement pieces and bringing attention to causes, Lagerlöf would use her pen to bring attention to the spread of tuberculosis and consumption in Sweden. That brings us to a familiar title to listeners of this show. That story follows a carriage from the underworld as it takes its final soul of the new year. Peter Graves writes, In a letter to her friend Sophie Elkin in the summer of 1912, Selma Lagerlöf wrote, For years now I've had in my head 
the plan to write a Christmas story of the kind that Dickens used to write. A week later, she returned to the same topic, saying, If I could get my Christmas carol finished in about 90 to 100 pages long, I would bring it out as a little book for Christmas. Graves adds, The book was finished and sent to Bonniers in November, and with some last-minute changes suggested by Sophie Elkin, The Phantom Carriage was published in time for Christmas. Or Sir Carlin, or Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness, it's had a number of titles over time. The stories behind the writing of this novel and its inspiration could be a whole episode in and of itself. There are so many ingredients that came together to push someone in the direction of writing this great book. And it's cool that this book, like the film it inspired, covers so many genres and works on so many levels. Selma Lagerlof's narrative triumph in The Phantom Carriage is to keep two balls in the air simultaneously, Graves explains. This is not a framework story in which the reader is moved from a primary plane of reality to a secondary plane of fantasy or transcendent reality and back. Instead, the realities are intertwined, intertwined rather than integrated because the reader constantly remains aware of them as distinct. And nowhere is it suggested that the ghostly plane is less real than the other, that the narrative might, for instance, be read as a dream. Going into the making of this episode, Chukralin, Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness, The Phantom Carriage, was the only novel of Selma Lagerlof that I was able to read. I had seen the film numerous times going into the book, so I wasn't sure what to expect. What I found was a great story and a relatively breezy read that is still incredibly affecting. Lagerlof did a lot with very few pages, and it is totally a book that I will revisit and reread often, probably as a December tradition. But out of the gate, the book didn't really take off the way her previous works had, business-wise. Lagerlof realized this, but stood strong behind her work and kept a positive outlook on what the future held. In speaking on The Phantom Carriage, Lagerlof would say, My book hasn't had such a peaceful and pleasant reception as my previous book. It has proved contentious with both the public and the critics. But although it does not have so many friends, those it does have seem all the warmer, and we'll have to see whether The Phantom Carriage doesn't become a popular favorite in time. I certainly intended it to be a sermon, and I don't regret that, though it's perhaps a crime against aesthetics. I say perhaps because I'm not absolutely sure. It does seem to me that literature is the bridge over which all sorts of things can be driven into the brain, philosophy and the art of living, so why not morality and religion as well, as long as it's not made too boring. If it wasn't already clear from spending two hours talking about the Phantom Carriage movie, we kind of dig the story here at the Golden Silent Films Podcast International Headquarters. As a film, it is a near-perfect adaptation of the novel in our minds. Aside from some few minor quibbles, it's an all-timer. Much like the novel, it is a perfect mix of Swedish beauty and mystery, emotion and folklore. Much like Lagerlof's work, it is perfectly Swedish. You can see throughout the film the care that Victor Schulstrom took in bringing a beloved author's work to life. What do you often hear about book-to-screen adaptations? The book is better, people always say, right? With The Phantom Carriage, you get the rare double-double of both versions being, for lack of a better word, masterpieces. I wasn't the only person vibing with Schulstrom's film adaptation of Lagerlof's New Year's Eve tale of death and redemption. Selma Lagerlof was a huge fan of the film and what its worldwide success meant for the reach of her books. In a letter that Lagerlof wrote to Victor Schulstrom after the success of The Phantom Carriage, she stated, among other things, the following. Now that film is probably happily finished, and the excellent work that you have put into film, both as film writer, director, and actor, is this time fully appreciated. Now, however, it seems as if you have paved the way not only for Swedish film, but for my books. 
Like many folks, the horrors of the First World War would take their toll on Lagerlof. All her life, the author had been a strong voice in the world of social justice, and many of Lagerlof's legion of readers saw this as a perfect opportunity for her to speak up and out against the atrocities of war. But it would be a time that would see her lose creativity. She felt the political events of the world were draining her creative power. She really didn't have much to say. Her first book during this period, Lagerlof would write, Kejarn of Portugalian in 1914, the English language release of the novel would be called The Emperor of Portugalia. With Marbaca back in her possession, Lagerlof felt a renewed connection and inspiration from her childhood home. One of the works to come from this reinvigoration was The Emperor of Portugalia. The novel was published in 1914 and contained drawings by Albert Engstrom. Lagerlof called it a Swedish King Lear. The novel was a success with critics and readers. Even newspaper reviewers were saying it was right up there with past works like Gosta Berling's Saga, which is high praise. An English translation by Velma Swanson and Howard would soon follow, being published in 1916. The novel takes place in the late 1800s in Lagerlof's native Varmland, a locale often favored by the author. The story recounts the imaginary life of a tenant farmer, Jan, in Skrokia and his daughter. He loves his daughter more than anything else, but after she moves to Stockholm at the age of 18, she stops sending letters home. The father falls into a dream world where he imagines she has become a noble empress of Portugalia, and thus also makes himself a great emperor. His whole life is dominated by thoughts of her return and what will then happen. In his role as emperor residing in the poor countryside, he can challenge the area's social hierarchies, wearing his imperial regalia, he sits at the front of the church, takes place at the head of the table at parties and tries to socialize with local landlords. A mental breakdown comes over the farmer when Jan finds out his daughter in Stockholm is really a prostitute and he drives and he drifts into being the village fool. Peter Graves chimes in, The Emperor of Portugalia is not just a novel about the miracle of a newborn child and a father's love of his daughter. It is also a text about a fantasy world emerging in response to extreme external pressures and about the insights and support this seemingly mad world can generate. Jan, the central character, develops for himself an outsider position similar to that occupied by Sven Elverson in Lagerlof's more emphatically pacifist novel, Banalist, in 1919, a position that allows for both critical and innovative perspectives on society. It is with a heavy heart that we talk about the Victor Schulstrom-directed and Lon Chaney-starring adaptation of this book, The Tower of Lies. I introduced it that way because the film is now a lost film. It's a bummer on many levels, from losing Shulstrom directing an American production to missing out on a great performance by Lon Chaney and Norma Shearer. In the book The Films of Lon Chaney by Lon Chaney expert and biographer Michael F. Blake, we learned about the filming of this movie and how it came to be at MGM. Blake writes, Portions of the film were shot on location in the Sacramento River Delta, Lake Arrowhead, and in the Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles, California. The film's working title was Emperor of Portugalia, the title of the novel, which had been published in Sweden in 1915. The rights to the story were purchased in 1922 by Metro Pictures. The film was in production from May 5, 1925 to July 2, 1925. It was released in theaters on October 11, 1925 and clocked in at seven reels. It is also worthwhile to note that this film was technically directed by Victor Seastrom, this was that early point, if you remember, in Shulstrom's U.S. run where he was working under the Seastrom name. 
Michael Blake's book has some great reviews from periodicals of the time. And here are just a couple of the looks at this now lost film. Photoplay Magazine writes, If the director had been as concerned with telling the story as he was with thinking up symbolic scenes, this would have been a great picture. The emotions are those of the theater, not of life, in spite of the fact that both Lon Chaney and Norma Shear have made them real. Heartily recommended for those who think most movies are too flippant. It was Lon Chaney's performance that really stood out to Movie Magazine, which wrote, To those who believe Lon Chaney needs the aid of unusual makeup to put his role over, the Tower of Lies will certainly prove a revelation. He does not resort to the grotesque, but from the first sequences where he appears as a tiller of the soil, who neither loves nor hates, just works, until the coming of his daughter, who brings him a realization of love, to that last when he becomes a demented old man, his interpretation is pathetically convincing. The critics and crowds loved The Tower of Lies. It was an incredible success in the States and abroad, where it raked in $653,000 in worldwide box office gross. Despite Lon Chaney being a huge name in the box office guarantee, Norma Shearer received top billing over Chaney in the majority of the film's promotional materials. To reiterate the film's success and reiterate what a loss it was, Michael Blake writes, The Tower of Lies was chosen as one of the top ten movies of the year by Photoplay, Film Mercury, The New York Post, and The New York Morning Telegraph. Chaney's performance was voted one of the year's best by Film Mercury. This story concept was also fertile ground to other filmmakers over the years. It was filmed again in 1944 as The Emperor of Portugalia, directed by Gustav Molander and starring Victor Schulström in a fun twist. In another tie back to our Phantom Carriage episode, it was shot on the Rasunda Studios in Stockholm and on location in the city's old town and in Varmland. In 1992, a television version was made, which was written and directed by Lars Molin. Selma Lagerlof wasn't done winning honors and awards all over Sweden. No, not even close. In 1914, she became the first woman elected to the Swedish Academy. Speaking of awards, as has been well documented in this episode, Lagerlof was an incredible winner of various prizes and honors. But her connection to prizes doesn't stop with merely winning them, however. She would also be an inspiration for a literary prize awarded in her honor. In 1983, the Sun Municipality created the Selma Lagerlof Award. If any place were to honor the cream of the literary crop, it would be here. Sun is located in the oft-mentioned Varmland County in west-central Sweden, and included in this municipality is the always-aforementioned Marbaka. Now, the award itself is given every August 13th to an author writing in the spirit of Selma Lagerlof. As I mentioned, it was founded in 1983 and has been awarded annually since 1984, with the first recipient being Birgitta Trotzig. Astrid Lindgren, who you may remember from writing Pippi Longstocking, won the award in 1986. The most recent honoree was Bengt Berg in 2023. It's been quite a while since Selma Lagerlof and her pen roamed the Varmland countryside. While she's been gone quite a while, her influence still remains above and beyond literary awards. Her creativity and vision have inspired countless generations of writers and creatives. Writer Anna Maria Helberg Molberg is one of those folks touched by the magic of this beautiful rural area of Sweden. She writes, Farmland strikes me as creatively alive today as it was in generations past, with new authors taking their writing in new directions, often inspired by the history and landscape of farmland. I feel proud to be a writer from a region of such long-standing literary traditions, and I can feel the influence seeping into my own poetry and po prose. It is a heritage to treasure.
Before we leave Varmland, let's take another look at Selma Lagerlof's land-owning legacy. Not only was she able to reclaim her childhood home, but retain a legacy still shared with fans, literature buffs, and history aficionados all over the world. Today, it is a museum and tourist destination for all to experience. The Marbaka website tells us, Welcome to Selma Lagerlof's home and be fascinated by the story of her writing and life. Visit the beautiful memorial estate designed by one of the greatest architects of the time. You will be guided around the beautiful home, captivated by Selma Lagerlof's creativity, storytelling, and her sense of taste and decor. The estate is open on weekends, noon to 4, May through September, and open daily from June 17th until August 29th. There is so much to do there. From guided tours of Lagerlof's home to coffee and homemade cakes at the Marbaca Cafe, there is always something new to discover. On top of the main tours and adventures available at the historic site, every year brings a fun, ex fun assortment of special events and themed weekends. If you want more info to plan your world tour around, head on over to marbaca.com for more details. On the film front, Selma Lagerlof left quite a legacy in the motion picture industry, but her sphere of influence didn't stick solely to the silent era. Her works were turned into movies well into the sound realm. In principle, all of her significant works have been adapted for film and television in Sweden and abroad. The Phantom Carriage was released, for example, in a French version by Julien de Vivet in 1939, a year before Lagerlof's death, and in a new Swedish version by Arne Matson in 1958. Douglas Sirk made a German version of The Girl from Stormy Torpet in 1935, and the same novel has also been filmed in Turkish, Finnish, Danish, and Swedish. Dunningen, Charlotte Lowenskold, and Jerusalem are among other works that have been filmed several times, writes Anders Anikus, a journalist, literary scholar, and program editor at Cinematiket. As we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite Swedish authors on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the outstanding authors that have entertained us so much. Once Marbaka Manor had been refurbished as a magnificent building, Lagerlof also returned to her childhood in her writing. Marbaka was published in 1922, Et Barnes Memoir in 1930, and Dagbok in 1932. She intentionally portrayed the farm and its workers in an idealized fashion, but many believe that her depictions were of genuine memories. In an article from the New York Times from September of 1919, writer T.R. Ibarra dives into Lagerlof's book about her childhood home. He writes, In Marbaca, there is absorbing interest from start to finish. From its pages, a dozen characters, men, women, and children, stand out clearly and convincingly. There is no hero, no heroine, unless Marbaca itself, the big country estate in the Swedish province of Varmland, where Selma Lagerlof was born and grew up, may be said to fill the place alike of a hero and heroine. For nobody depicted in the book is quite as important as Marbaca itself. The fortunes of all are indissolubly bound up with it. The inspiration for Selma Lagerlof's last series of novels came from a priest's correspondence collection. The first installment, Loven's Golden Ringen from 1925, is a ghost story reflecting the contemporary interest in the occult. Its sequels, Charlotte Loven's Gold, also from 1925, and Anna's Fard from 1928, sought to determine how a pious priest could become morally destroyed. 
Getting back to the Lagerlof's laundry list of honors, on her 70th birthday, she received the Order of St. Olaf, first class, which, as a Golden Girl superfan, delights me to no end. And she also received the Danish Distinguished Service Medal and the Diploma of the French Legion of Honor. Lagerlof's last published work came in 1933 with a book entitled Host. It was a collection of stories and speeches. That is one of the super cool things about Selma. She loved writing, flat out loved it. She really never stopped either. In fact, as late as January of 1940, at the ripe old age of 81, she was working on a biography of her dear companion, Sophie Elkin. Unfortunately, that Sophie Elkin book would never materialize. She had been ill for some time of peritonitis, the March 17, 1940 edition of the New York Times wrote. Grave anxiety had been felt throughout Sweden, which acknowledged her as its most distinguished living writer. Specialists had been summoned from Stockholm, but she died at 7.25 a.m. after being unconscious for 24 hours. She lies in the family grave at Ostra Amdrik Cemetery in Varmland. As always, follow us on our various social media sites to see some pictures of the legendary author's grave. Shortly before her death, Selma Lagerlof's kindness and caring would shine through during a time of unimaginable pain and horror in touch lives in a way she could never have imagined. During World War II, Lagerlof intervened to help Jewish writer and future Nobel Prize winner Nellie Sachs and her mother secure an exit out of Nazi Germany. Instead of my clumsy explanations of the whole ordeal, let's turn to Sachs herself to tell the story of her miraculous escape to Stockholm and the bittersweet timing of everything. When accepting her Nobel Prize for Literature, Nellie Sachs talked about the impact Lagerlof had on her life. The speech was given in Stockholm on December 10, 1966. Sachs would say, In the summer of 1939, a German girlfriend of mine went to Sweden to visit Selma Lagerlof to ask her to secure a sanctuary for my mother and myself in that country. Since my youth, I had been so fortunate as to exchange letters with Selma Lagerlof, and it is out of her work that my love for her country grew. The, print, the painter Prince Eugene and the novelist helped save me. In the spring of 1940, after torturous months, we arrived in Stockholm. The occupation of Denmark and Norway had already taken place. The great novelist was no more. We breathed the air of freedom without knowing the language or any person. Today, after 26 years, I think of what my father used to say on every 10th of December back in my hometown, Berlin. Now they celebrate the Nobel ceremony in Stockholm. Thanks to the choice of the Swedish Academy, I am now in the midst of that ceremony. To me, a fairy tale seems to have become a reality. Dying in 1940, Lagerlof did not live long enough to find out if Sachs and her mother had made it to safety. Following Selma Lagerlof's death, Valberg Olander published in 1941 a selection of correspondence from which she received from the late writer. There is no doubt when reading the letters that the relationship between the two women was a romantic one and an intimately physical one at that, the skbl.se website explains. And it seems appropriate to wrap this talk of, Sof of Selma Lagerlof up with another quote from Klaus Annerstedt when he said once of Lagerlof, Such an intimate and profound view is possible only for one whose soul is deeply rooted in the Swedish earth and who has sucked nourishment from its myths, history, folklore, and nature. It is easy to understand why the mystical, nostalgic, and the miraculous dusk that is peculiar to the Nordic nature is reflected in all her works. The greatness of her art consists precisely in her ability 
to use her heart as well as her genius to give to the original peculiar character and attitudes of the people a shape in which we recognize ourselves. And with that, our double shot of Sweden comes to a close. While we say goodbye in Swedish, for now, this excitement of travel is far from over. We have a lot of great stops coming up and look forward to sharing that adventure with all of you. When we put these two Swedish episodes together, our intention was to transport you fine listeners to the most fascinating and historic locales the country of Sweden has to offer. Whether it's the bustling and beautiful cities of Stockholm and Gothenburg, or the bucolic nature of Varmland, and more specifically Marbaka, we hope you felt a little bit of the spirit of Sweden. Did you enjoy the literary locale of this world tour stop? What books and authors are you excited for us to chat about next in relation to silent film? Are you listening to this show in another country? If you are, let us know. We want to hear from you. And we can do all that and more at the various social media spots of the Golden Silent Films podcast. While we are mentioning the social medias, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought of this novel episode. What silent and silent related movies, past or present, domestic or abroad, do you want us to look at next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we need your work and input to help our future episodes here in Season 4 and beyond. As weird as it sounds, the groundwork is already being laid for Season 5. You can always find us at the Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence One on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. It does a ton for our visibility, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes. So, with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine reading and listening. And don't forget... The silence are golden, and the talkies are just a fad. And read Swedish books. <laughs>